This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we're going to um, take uh, a 10,000 foot view on something that is tremendously important that is um, related to health policy and health care policy, that is access to health care. Um, but before we begin, um, as I threatened you last week, you're going to be um, subjected to my storytelling. So um, I'm going to start off tonight's session with a true story. Um, and uh, it's quite detailed, but quite interesting. So I encourage you to stick with me um, as I tell you the story that's entitled Man and Bird. In 1971, a British family doctor by the name of Julian Tudor Hart, for those of you who were last week will remember uh, Tudor Hart, made an observation based on his clinical experience working in the National Health Service in Wales in the United Kingdom. He cared for a geographic swath of patients that had been assigned to him, a population that came from low-income neighborhoods. Cross-trained as an epidemiologist and therefore skilled in recognizing patterns related to health and disease, he noted that while he worked nonstop from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday, his colleagues assigned similar-sized populations in the wealthier neighborhoods, took Wednesdays off to golf, were home by 5 p.m., and dined with their families, and had both Saturdays and Sundays off. So he carried out a formal study of the National Health Service in London, and discovered that this pattern was replicable across all of London's municipalities and sectors. In essence, he discovered that doctors were far busier in low-income neighborhoods than in high-income neighborhoods, both because of a much greater burden of illness in these neighborhoods and because of an undersupply of healthcare providers relative to this need. He first coined this phenomenon the inverse care hypothesis, and later, as the pattern was found to hold across the globe, the inverse care law. Tudor Hart's law states, quote, the availability of good medical care tends to vary inversely with the needs of the population it serves. This operates more completely where medical care is most exposed to market forces and less so where such exposure is reduced. Can I ask you to close the back door uh, for me? Thank you. Physicians, nurses, and social workers, pharmacists who work in safety net settings in underserved regions are familiar with the inverse care law. They feel it in their gut. Always aspiring to reverse the inverse care law, we often, often feel as though we struggle like Sisyphus pushing with all our might to roll that giant boulder up the mountain, only to have to do it again and again. That was the introduction. Now the story, uh, part one, the man. One morning in 2000, I enter my outpatient clinic 20 minutes early for my morning session. The clinic's waiting room is already filled beyond capacity, the elderly, the uninsured, and the disabled, all wedged together as if on an immigrant ship, hopeful travelers bound for the promise of Ellis Island. The odor of unwashed clothes, soiled with layers of sweat and soured by urinary incontinence, mixed with repugnant, fragrance, repugnant fragrances of cheap cologne, and cheaper alcohol, come together to create a prototypical olfactory concoction, a public hospital clinic scent that is somehow both putrid yet deeply compelling. 
I carefully navigate through the already overcrowded waiting room, past the searching eyes and around the wheelchairs, and gravitate toward the back of the clinic, spotting the chin-high stack of charts that my medical assistant has obtained from the medical records department and set up for my review. This is before we had electronic health records. Volumes upon volumes of charts from the 14 patients on my morning schedule that contain decades of visits, countless blood tests, x-ray reports, specialist consultations, vaccination records, and hospital discharge summaries. Making the most of my time, I quickly leaf through it any notable clinical events that have transpired in the interval between today's upcoming visits and the last. This pre-rounding exercise, as we call it, carried out with each patient for which a chart has been found, about a quarter of charts never make it out of the black hole of the medical records department, reorients me to the trajectories of my patients, and by reading my most recent notes, I can set a preliminary agenda for each of my upcoming encounters. The orderliness of the stack of charts in our charting room multiplied times five to provide my other colleagues the same opportunity to prepare belies the impending chaos and turmoil of the morning clinic to come. I spend most of my pre-rounding time on Mr. Garcia's chart, rereading my notes, reviewing interval data, and collecting my thoughts. A handsome and well-built 56-year-old Spanish-speaking immigrant from Guatemala, he has spent the last 20 years working construction in San Francisco, both for a large construction company as well as doing some side jobs as an individual contractor. While, like one-third of our patients, he is uninsured, I have had the privilege of caring for him because our city has a public hospital. Over the many years we have known each other, he has proudly shown me photos of the houses he has helped to build, the kitchen remodels he has done, and even a downtown high-rise he helped to construct. I recall that the recent years have been less productive for him, as arthritis in his hands and knees have made it increasingly challenging him for him to keep up with the youth and consistently put in the hours of hard labor required of the immigrant construction worker. He has had to step away from some jobs, decline others, and for his solo contractor gigs, he has been unable to deliver on time. He hasn't accrued enough income to hire help and participate in construction jobs in a more supervisory role, and his lack of English skills has made it impossible for him to get his contractor's license, further restricting his opportunities. As I flip through his chart, I recall our prior visit. At that time, Mr. Garcia's chief complaint had been fatigue, a profound fatigue that left him unable to walk long distances, a fatigue that hit him the moment he awoke, making him feel as if he hadn't slept at all. Multiple potential medical diagnoses to explain the symptom of fatigue instantaneously peppered my mind. Yet before I fully gave in to them, I reminded myself that the most common cause of fatigue in primary care is depression. So after eliciting more details on his fatigue and carrying out a quick quick review of symptoms related to organ systems whose failure could result in fatigue, I gently queried him about his mood. He acknowledged that he was increasingly concerned about his inability to pay the rent for the two-bedroom apartment in the Mission District that housed him and his wife, their three children and one grandchild, while also needing to pay for food, clothing, and school supplies for the kids. I recall how he then shared with me that he also has a family back in Guatemala, from a prior wife, and that he even has been unable to send them the small amounts of money he has been sending them each month for two decades. He told me that things were beginning to look grim for him, that he wasn't sleeping well, and that his arthritis was bothering him more and more, making it harder and harder for him to work. He felt caught in a cycle. He began to weep silently, 
turning his face away to shield himself from my witnessing his suffering. I, too, teared up and quickly looked away and down to my chart. To be the man of the house and to experience that role gradually slip away from oneself must be a very painful process. In line with his wretched state, I noticed that our room had taken on a trace of the waiting room scent, the scent of poverty and vulnerability. After expressing my compassion for the situation he had found himself in, my confidence in his ability to manage this challenge, and my commitment to do my best to help him get through this, I quickly explained the common causes of fatigue, including depression and anxiety, and ordered the routine blood work to evaluate fatigue, thyroid function tests, blood count, etc., Since he was reticent to go deep with a discussion about a diagnosis of depression and any associated treatments, I simply asked him to take the next few weeks to consider whether he would like to receive some professional counseling and to let me know at our upcoming visit whether he felt he wanted to talk to me more about it and get some treatment. As I continue to leaf through his chart, I am further reminded that his blood work had been notable for a fairly profound anemia. It's a low red blood cell count, one that could very well explain his fatigue. I read my note that documents the telephone call in which I had informed him of the anemia and instructed him to obtain obtain additional lab studies just before our upcoming visit to evaluate whether he had the kind of anemia caused by iron deficiency, which prevents the adequate production of red blood cells, versus a type caused by red blood cell destruction. Today's visit would allow us to discuss the results of this second battery of tests and consider any further workup of his anemia. After we greet each other, I ask him about his symptoms. He tells me his mood and his fatigue are about the same, but his arthritis pain is worse, especially the pain in his back. I tell him that I don't remember his arthritis affecting his back, and he responds, well, I guess it does now. He asks me about the most recent lab tests. Since these have not yet been filed in his paper record, I call these up on my late 20th century office computer. While his anemia persists, there is no evidence of iron deficiency, and while there is also no evidence that his red blood cells are being prematurely destroyed, it appears that his bone marrow is simply not producing new red blood cells at a pace to make up for the anemia. As I interpret these results for him, my brain interrupts my speech with an associative phrase, anemia and new back pain, anemia and new back pain anemia, and new back pain. The connection between these two entities leads my mind straight to cancer. This is a typical presentation of cancer, anemia and back pain. And while many cancers can spread to the bone marrow and spine, there is one that originates within the very cells of the bone marrow, taking over the space where blood cells are produced, and over time, seeding itself into many parts of the skeletal system, especially the spine. Known as multiple myeloma, At the time, this cancer was not curable, but was treatable. Treatment can prevent suffering and significantly prolong life. Multiple myeloma, this bone marrow cancer, can be detected with a blood test or a urine test and is confirmed with a bone marrow biopsy, a painful but definitive procedure. This back pain of yours, is it new for you, I ask? Well, you know, I I always have pains, but yes, I guess it's kind of new. I tell him we need to keep looking for the cause of the anemia, and I order a spinal x-ray and another set of blood tests and a urine test. I ask him to return in one week, and I squeeze him onto a schedule that is already fully booked. Part 2, The Bird. I finish my morning clinic at 1.45 p.m. As I exit the building and take a deep, recuperative breath, glad that I have that intense flurry of activity behind me, my pager goes off. 
It is the babysitter of my four-year-old twin boys. I call back. She is hysterical. I'm unable to understand what she's trying to tell me other than something about my son, Aton. My heart is racing. She can't answer my simple questions. I yell at her to put Aton, the four-year-old, on the phone. A moment later, hi, Daddy. Putting on my calmest voice, I say, hello, Aton. What's going on over there? Are you okay? I think Dulce is sick. He just sits there on the bottom of his cage. He just stares at me. I took him out now. He's in my hand. He doesn't even fly away. Dulce is the twin of Guapo, Gabriel's parakeet. The two boys and the two Guatemalan birds have been inseparable for over a year. I'm sorry, Eitan. We'll figure it out. Can you put Yasmin back on the phone? Yasmin, please pull yourself together. Everything will be all right. Just put Dulce back in his cage. I'll call a vet and see if I can get an appointment. Then I'll rush to be home by 4 o'clock. For now, please read some books with the boys, but in a different room. Part 3. The Man. While Mr. Garcia's x-ray is normal, both the blood and the urine tests are highly suggestive of multiple myeloma, the bone marrow cancer. As always, he arrives promptly for his visit, and I share with him my concerns. I tell him that the next step is to submit to a bone marrow biopsy, a somewhat painful procedure done by our blood cancer specialists, and that if the biopsy shows that he does not have bone marrow cancer, that we would have to follow him very closely to make sure it doesn't develop in the future. But if it does show cancer, we would want to quickly start him on chemotherapy to prevent any progression. I acknowledge that this must be particularly tough to hear, especially since he's been grappling with his work and financial difficulties. And now this. He looks me in the eye and tells me he is not scared and that he will do whatever needs to be done. His attempt at machismo is just that. I give him a firm squeeze on the shoulder and tell him I need to step out of the room to make a phone call to the cancer specialist to try to get him to be seen quickly. I look at my watch. I'm already 30 minutes behind, and he's only my second patient of the day. I page the cancer, the oncology fellow, and a few minutes later I get her on the phone. She tells me we have to be quick because she's dealing with a very busy clinic day. After I share with her the clinical scenario of Mr. Garcia, she informs me that their next available appointment is not for three months and offers to connect me to their clerk to get him that appointment. I calmly press her, as I have been through this dance before, as any doctor at San Francisco General has been. First they say no, then you kick and scream, and then they cry uncle and bend. But she is different. She persists with her hard line. Our dialogue escalates as I inform her that I am well aware that any delay could jeopardize my patient's well-being and declare that it is unacceptable that he should have to wait three months to get a bone marrow biopsy and start treatment. She flippantly retorts that I should, that, that I should just send him to California Pacific Medical Center, a chic private hospital up the road. Since we both know that the uninsured are not welcome anywhere else in the city or in the Bay Area, I accuse her of being stone-hearted, and demand to speak to the chief of the oncology clinic. She tells me she'll pass my message on and that I'll get a call back at some point and wishes me and my patient good luck. I re-enter Mr. Garcia's room and tell him, in as soothing a voice as I can muster, that I'm still working on getting him a timely appointment, that he should go home and I'll call him in a few days with a date, time, and location. Early that afternoon, I am indeed called by the chief of the hematology and oncology clinic. She confirms that she has absolutely no availability before the three-month appointment I was offered. When I forcefully push back, she tells me about the metastatic breast cancer patients, the lung cancer patients, and the advanced colon cancer patients who are also in line, 
how many of their patients don't speak English or don't have a home, which makes care even more complicated and time-intensive, how their service is swelling beyond capacity, and how one of their oncologists just quit because of the working conditions. So she is dealing with an acute on-chronic problem of inadequate supply relative to the demand. She suggests that if I have a genuine complaint about her clinic, then I should submit it to the director of public health and do it on behalf of all of the patients that are in her line, because the department holds the purse strings. I thank her for this pointless suggestion and ask her if there is a logic to her line, whether it is simply a first-come, first-serve or a needs-based decision. She responds by asking me if my patient has visible fractures on x-ray, any kidney failure, or a high calcium level, all complications of multiple myeloma. When I report that as of yet, thankfully, he does not, she says, well, since you asked, that's how we make our decision about who gets bumped up the line. I decide that in a medical world characterized by a mismatch between high demand and low supply, her decision-making makes perfect sense. Part four, the bird. I open the yellow pages and find the number of the Bay Area Animal Hospital two blocks from my house. I tell the front desk staff that I am aware that it is already 3 p.m., but I'm wondering whether I can get an urgent same-day appointment. When I tell them the scenario, they quickly respond that they don't do birds. They suggest I call the San Francisco Bird Hospital, located about four miles east. Really? A bird hospital? But she's already hung up. I phone the bird hospital. Sure, we can definitely make room for Dulce. We even have evening hours, if that is more convenient. Relieved that Dulce could be seen so promptly, I set an appointment for 4.30 p.m. that afternoon and call my wife so she can participate in this clinical rite of passage for our boys. I swing by my house to pick up the boys and the birds, and we all converge on the Bay Area Bird Hospital. As we step into the clinic entrance, my breath is taken away by the glimmer and shine of a pristine and empty waiting room. When I recover my breath, I smell an enticing trace of pine and spruce and hear the faint tweets of birdsong being piped in. We are greeted by a lovely receptionist who shepherds us right into a spacious exam room. The bird vet, donning the classic white coat, but accompanied by a toy-like miniature stethoscope, enters the room with a sparkling white-toothed smile. So, what's going on with Dulce, she asked my four-year-old. He's sick, he says, offering up the bird to her in his little cupped hands. I quickly take over the conversation and quickly fill her in, describing a syndrome that in, in medicine we term failure to thrive. I make sure she is aware that I am a physician. No problem, we can get right on this. She carries out a cursory physical exam, including inspecting and palpating from crown to cloaca, from crest to claw. She opens the bird's beak and takes a peek into his mouth and then a quick listen with her stethoscope. In hushed tones, she tells me and my wife that she detects what, what might be a mass in Dulce's underbelly. We see this all the time in these Central American parakeets, probably a hepatocellular carcinoma or a germ cell tumor. They're prone to get these in their first few years of life. I steal a glance at my wife and nod over to our boys, sending her a visual message that it may be time for us all to say our goodbyes to Dulce. But no worries. Let's perk this bird up with a quick gavage and grab an x-ray and we can take it from there. I've done a lavage, I say, before I say, basically pumping someone's stomach clean. But what's a gavage? Oh, it's basically the opposite. It's when we put high caloric nutrients and fluid into the bird's stomach. It really perks them up. She turns to my boys and bends down to their level, bringing forth all her empathy. She says, you'll see. It's safe and easy, and your bird will be just fine in no time. 
She moves toward the door to leave the room with Dulce now cupped in her hands. As she grabs the doorknob, dollar signs are spinning in front of my eyes like the spinning fruit in a slot machine. I ask myself, how much is it going to cost for a bird that we bought for $9.99 at our local pet shop? I jump in before she leaves. But what is an x-ray going to show? Wouldn't you need a, a CT scan, a CAT scan to find these types of tumors? She smiles again and gives me that empathic look again. Turns out, doctor, with birds, x-rays are as good as CAT scans are in humans. Sees right through them. We'll get our arms around this soon enough. As she dashes out of the room before I can stop her. My wife and I spend the next few minutes trying to make a plan for a quick exit while trying to delicately explain to our boys what Dulce, that Dulce is actually not going to be just fine. Part 5, The Man. Over the next week, I fail in my attempts to get him an earlier appointment. I phone him to let him know about the barriers I am encountering, but reassure him that I will keep advocating, including reaching out to other hospitals, and that I might have to even admit him to the hospital. He tells me his wife has been worried sick, but he is patient. He is gracious and grateful, and we share a warm goodbye on the phone. I had no idea then that I would never see or hear from him again. Over the next week, I call the four other hospital systems in the city, including the University Hospital and the Catholic-run hospital, but they do not offer my patient the, quote, charity care that they so often claim on their tax forms. So I'm left with only the realization that in my city, when it comes to a Spanish-speaking, middle-aged, immigrant family man with an eminently treatable cancer, one, there is a limit to charity, and two, in a world with high demand, low supply, and even less collective responsibility, we frame needed health care as charity, not as a basic human right. Part six, the bird. The vet rushes back in. She hands the bird back to Eitan, again with a smile. Just as I suspected, she tosses the x-rays onto a viewing panel, flips on the backlighting, and pulls me over by the elbow as one doctor revealing her clinical acumen to another, more junior doctor. Right here. You see this bright white area? It's supposed to be translucent in a bird. This is the area of the cloaca, where they urinate and defecate. It's been obliterated by a germ cell tumor. No doubt about it. All right, then I say, so we should maybe talk about... That's the great news, though, is that these tumors are super responsive to chemotherapy. You know, a cisplatin, corticosteroid-based regimen. And more good news is we can start it today. You can bring Dulce in weekly until we begin to see a response. No cures, of course, but they definitely respond. I stare at her in disbelief, my mouth agape. I turn my back to the boys and pull her aside and ask under my breath... Can we not talk about chemotherapy, please, and maybe discuss, you know, more of a palliative care kind of approach? Palliative care, she hisses at me, her eyes on me like daggers. Don't you realize you could give Dulce another three to six months of quality of life? Wow, thank you, but I think we'll just take the bird home. She looks at my wife and my boys as if searching for a sane person to rescue this clinical encounter from its deeply troubling and unethical outcome. Well, if you're all sure that's what you want, and to be clear, that's not what I do, but if you're sure, at least take home a syringe of Cipro to give Dulce twice a day for five days. But Cipro is an antibiotic. How is that going to help? We find that it just does. And she hands me a prepackaged 3cc syringe filled with a milky substance holding my hand in both her hands, providing me with a degree of bedside comfort, fitting closure for a final visit with a dying parakeet's family. The syringe is already labeled Dulce. Part 7, the man. I phone Mr. Garcia again to give him an update. 
struggling with how I can encourage him to stick it out, knowing that he has a cancer that is growing while he waits. As the phone rings, I imagine his family gathered around the kitchen table, anxiously asking each other when the doctor is going to call so that Papa can begin treatment. I imagine the strong face he puts on for them, telling them to relax, that everything will be just fine. His eldest daughter answers. When I ask for him, she tells me that he is not in. A few days prior, he decided to return to Guatemala in the hopes of receiving care for his cancer and to reconnect with his second family. I tell her how sorry I am that we couldn't start treatment as quickly as we would have liked to. She says that they're used to that in America, the fact that poor people get second-rate health care. I wince because that really stings. I have nothing to say in response other than asking her to promise to pass on my best wishes to him and requesting that they please let me know how he fares back home. Hanging up, I wonder what sort of treatments, if any, he will receive in Guatemala. I envision him lying in an open coffin in a mountain village church surrounded by tearful family, a family whose reunification is remarkable for its rapid reversal. The bird. The six of us, two of whom are now back in their cage, ruffle out of the exam room, ru- shuffle out of the exam room. As my family heads back to the waiting room, I edge over to the front desk clerk. Will this be cash or credit, or do you have pet insurance? Credit, I say gloomily. As I'm waiting, I look at my watch, 5.15 p.m. Wow, 45 minutes from presentation to laboratory workup to diagnosis to treatment options to decision. This entire avian clinical cancer cascade took only 45 minutes. The total comes out to $437.95. Here's an itemized bill for your review. Damn. I hand her my card, feeling like I've just been conned out of a whole bunch of green. As I scan the itemized bill, exam, gavage, procedure, gavage, contents, radiographs, two, ciprofloxacin and 3cc syringe, the secretary hands me a brochure with a toucan on its cover and asks with a smile, would you like to purchase our health insurance for your bird? (laughs) Health insurance? We were just told that our bird has a fatal cancer. How will that help? Well, our Embrace health insurance will cover all of your bird's upcoming medical costs, which could really be helpful, excluding any costs related to the cancer, of course. I pocket the brochure because one day I'm sure I'm going to want to write a short story about this. (laughs) I approach my wife and show her the receipt. Let's get the hell out of here, I tell her, and quick. Two days later, my pager goes off. It's our babysitter. I call back and Yasmin picks up, sobbing a mixture of incomprehensible utterances and laments in what sounds like her native Arabic. I ask her to put Eitan on the phone. Hey, buddy, it's Daddy. What's going on? Dulce's dying. I think he's dead. I'm holding him on my lap, and he's not even moving. He's kind of stiff. Yep, I think you're right, buddy. That's sad. I'm sorry, sweetie. Just wrap him in a nice little towel and put him on the couch or keep just holding him if you want to. I'll be home as soon as I can. It's so great that you got to hold him while he died. I'm really proud of you. When I get home, we can cry about it together, okay? That night, we buried Dulce under a spruce sapling in our backyard, wrapped in a Guatemalan flag I bought in the Mission District on the way home. The spruce has turned into a healthy tree, now over 30 feet tall. (laughs) Epilogue. And then I'll hand it over to, to Andy. This is the epilogue. The bird. And it's a letter that was sent to us. October 17, 2001, from the San Francisco Bay Area Bird Hospital. Dear Dulce... I am writing to send you our warmest regards and to say that I hope that life is treating you well. I noticed that it's been exactly one year since I had the pleasure of meeting with you in our office. 
Now would be a great time to come back in for your annual checkup. We hope you enjoy our poem of the day. It's been a year since you were last seen. Let's make sure your feathers maintain their sheen. So make a call to our waiting staff, whose jollity is sure to make you laugh. Your doctor won't give you a vaccine, but a bill of health that's squeaky clean. Feel free to call our office at the number below, and we'll do our best to squeeze you in at a time that is convenient for you. In good health, Dr. Julia Freeman. The man. In 2001, nearly 40% of the patients in my clinic were uninsured. As a result, they were often subject to long waits, poor access to care, never-ending cycles of medical bills that left them on never-ending pay plans or in profound medical debt, and preventable suffering. Many would drop out of needed care because of the costs or the waits. Fifteen years later, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, fewer than 10% of my clinic patients are uninsured, with Medicaid becoming the primary payer for those that are insured. Because those that remain uninsured are predominantly undocumented immigrants. Because of the influx of resources that came with more Medicaid reimbursement, the San Francisco Department of Public Health was able to make modest investments in the city's public health care system, expanding personnel, bolstering infrastructure to improve systems, and implementing electronic health records. In addition, some previously uninsured patients can now access care in private settings, In aggregate, this policy initiative has addressed an obscene mismatch between supply and demand, leading to dramatic reductions in waiting times for both primary care and specialty care. While not a panacea, the Affordable Care Act has changed the story of Mr. Garcia from being the rule to now being more of an exception. The Affordable Care Act is a progressive policy, an initiative whose intent is to reverse the inverse care law. As the nation grapples with the question of whether to repeal and replace Obamacare, versus adopt a universal health care model, it may be helpful to both reflect on Mr. Garcia's experience and consider honoring his memory. The contrast between what was offered to the bird and what was not offered to the man, poor availability of basic timely cancer care for the man, and unlimited availability of comprehensive cancer care for the bird, places in vivid relief the moral unacceptability and troubling reality of American society's inability to make an authentic commitment to prevent and treat illness. Thank you for listening. So, um, you know, we were working in that clinic, had been working in that clinic for decades, feeling this way, having these stories happen to us and to our patients, and um, we were led at that time by uh, uh, my chief of the Division of General Internal Medicine, who is our guest lecturer today, Dr. Andrew Beinman. Um, and Andy, we always knew, was a policy guy, but we never knew how that policy guy thing would be realized. Um, he stepped away for a sabbatical for which I covered him that turned into like a two and a three. And I was like, okay, just the the never ending sabbatical. He got a Robert Wood Johnson policy fellowship and worked in Washington, DC in part working uh, with representative Henry Waxman um, on uh, sort of the language and the implementation of Obamacare. And Andy is um, responsible, if not for being, the genius behind the blueprint of the Affordable Care Act, he's somewhere between the contractor who built it and the blueprint. It's the mortar and the glue and everything that led to the details of the Affordable Care Act, specifically as it relates to expanding primary care access. Andy then um, 
was uh, offered uh, one of the most important uh, research jobs in the United States, which is to direct the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, um, which uh, is uh, a branch of Health and Human uh, Services uh, at the federal government. Uh, and he uh, was really uh, revolutionizing uh, that agency. Um, and then uh, the unbelievable happened. Uh, a new president got elected, and I think the next day he got a letter on his desk. We can talk about that in our fireside chat. He's still bruised by it. Um, uh, so he, thankfully for us, he returned to California, but he has uh, continued uh, to have a role uh, in the federal government. Um, he is still a senior advisor in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So he's still trying to keep his hand in. And what Andy's going to talk about today is I think you're going to take us on a journey through uh, the development of the Affordable Care Act, what it has meant to Americans, and the current state of affairs with respect to how it's being jeopardized and what the future might hold. Is that a fair summary of what you're going to talk about? Andrew Beinman. Thank you. Just in terms of the very basics to sort of say, what, what is this law again? What's the chassis that it's built on? And basically, um, there were sort of three related concepts. And this is really important because as you think about some of the discussion that's gone on with repeal, that you realize if you have a three-legged stool, that if you pull out one, then the stool can't stand up anymore. So... What was going on at the time that uh, President Obama was elected was a lot of discussion, you'll probably recall, in the newspapers and elsewhere about people couldn't get health insurance, unlike the bird, couldn't get health insurance uh, when they had a prior existing condition. And so there was this problem that many people who needed to use the health care system could not access it because insurance was not made available uh, to them. And actually, both parties were really bought into that as something that needed to be fixed. And when they went to talk to insurance companies about this, insurance companies would say, yeah, we get that, but the problem is that if people only show up when they're sick, then we get the most costly people in the system, and that really doesn't work as a business model for us. We need people to come in when they're healthy and to support the people who are sick in that system. And that's really the idea behind the individual mandate, to get everyone sort of in the pool together and then, of course, if people do develop illness or have needs, then, in fact, there's adequate resources between those who are healthy or contributing, who are not deriving as much of those resources, to help subsidize the costs of, of those who are more sick. And that's the individual mandate part. Of course, the individual mandate has been a source of much discussion about why do I have to buy this thing and, and so forth, and we can come back and talk about that. But basically, it is to try to get everyone in the pool. The problem is if you make everyone get in the pool, health insurance is not a cheap thing, right? So there needs to be some way to make sure that lower-income individuals have a way to be able to buy into that. And so the law then essentially set up two tracks to be able to do that. For the very uh, lowest-income folks, uh, they made the Medicaid program more available. They basically expanded that. And secondly, for the slightly higher-income group, they provided subsidies on a sliding scale to be able to buy health insurance through an exchange, or what we call here in California, covered California. So that's the basic chassis of the system. And I mentioned that the Medicaid program expanded. That was a fundamental part of the program. Uh, Medicaid is a federal and state shared program. 
uh, that, that uh, meaning that the federal government and the states put up some money depending on um, the state. Our state is a sort of a 50-50 state. Half of every dollar is spent by California and half is given by the federal government. What changed with the, with the law is that it used to be that Medicaid covered people with disabilities, low-income children, and low-income children and their parents. What it didn't cover was low-income adults who did not have children. And so one of the things we did with the Affordable Care Act is we actually created a new category of eligibility uh, that basically allows adults who do not have children but who meet this low-income standard to be able to come into the Medicaid program. So that was uh, essentially what the Medicaid expansion was all about. And then the other main feature of the ACA, which really is the one that's most strongly associated with people saying Obamacare, 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 it's, Obamacare is actually the whole law, but the feature that became new for many people is these ideas, these health insurance exchanges, or, or what are now referred to as marketplaces. Um, may, most states do this through the same shared one, the federal one, but states were given the option to set up their own. California, because it's a pretty big market, decided we'll do this on our own and we'll set up our own. The analogy I use for what they are, it's kind of like a farmer's market. It's basically where vendors, insurance companies, come in and compete on price and quality, just like if you go down to the ferry building or any other farmer's market, uh, you can see side by side different people selling similar things, and you can price shop and, and make your decisions. Um, the other rules associated with these marketplaces was that they couldn't decide if someone came forward and said, I want to buy your peaches, I want to buy your health insurance, the vendor couldn't say, sorry, I don't want to sell it to you. It was a guaranteed issue, which was a real change from what was going on with pre-existing conditions of being able to say, I don't care if you're applying, I'm not letting you have it because you have a pre-existing condition. It also set up this thing called essential health benefits. And so this was also a really big deal before the Affordable Care Act, which was that a lot of people were buying individual health insurance coverage, and then they would get sick. Maybe they got breast cancer diagnosis or something, and then they'd go to use their insurance, and they'd find out on the small print it would say, this is health insurance unless you actually need to use it. And so that basically, um, it turned out that many of these insurance policies were not worth the paper that they were written on. So essential health benefits is this concept that to sell something called insurance, uh, it has to have these basic features of covering doctor visits, emergency department visits, hospital care, drug costs, and so forth. And there was very specified what are called actuarial values. And you may know these as the things like bronze plan, silver plan, gold plan, and platinum plan. These refer to the fact of what portion of the health care expenditure will be covered by the health insurance. If you buy a bronze plan, health insurance will cover 60% of your costs. Silver, 70%. Gold, 80%. And platinum, 90%. And so it was very clear to uh, a, a consumer that you knew what you were buying and you weren't going to show up at the doctor's office and find out it wasn't covering anything. And then the final key feature of how the, the farmer's market was set up for health insurance is that the distinction in the pricing couldn't be on you as a consumer, couldn't vary by what your prior health conditions were. It could, though, vary by your age band. And so that it became, it used to be prior to the Affordable Care Act, it could sometimes be 10 to 12 times more expensive for someone in their 50s to buy health insurance than someone in their 20s. 
This, under the Affordable Care Act, the range of difference couldn't be more than three to one. And so there is some age difference, but it's much collapsed. Uh, and um, that's uh, an important aspect of trying to make health care more uh, uh, affordable for people as they age over time. Of course, it has also had some of the flip side effects that we can talk about, which is that, therefore, it's a little bit more expensive for younger people who maybe are healthier or suddenly uh, uh, paying a bit more because the band, excuse me, is, co is collapsed some. So anyway, that's how the marketplaces work. So when we talk about Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, I mean, it's had some fairly dramatic impacts. It has covered more than 20 million people in this country have gained coverage since 2014. Uh, it has uh, not only expanded coverage overall, but it has shrunk some of the differences that were observed prior to the ACA in terms of the availability of health insurance coverage for uh, Latinos versus whites or African Americans versus whites. It has shrunk this difference. It has disproportionately given more insurance to people of color. It has not eliminated the difference. So whites in the United States still are more likely to have health insurance than people of color, but that difference has shrunk quite a bit through uh, the Affordable Care Act. California has experienced more change than any other state. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, we were in the group in which we were about the worst. Uh, we, we had an uninsurance rate of over 17%, and that has now been cut by more than half. So it's a very dramatic change. Uh, our state has really embraced uh, uh, the coverage expansion, uh, which has been dramatic. And to really underscore the amazing story you just heard from Dean, uh, San Francisco General Hospital, or Zuckerberg San Francisco General, in 2016, uh, and I got this from the, the CEO of the hospital, only 3% of the hospital admissions in 2016 were uninsured. That really speaks to the incredible change of the uninsured moving into the Medicaid program, gaining insurance through the marketplaces, uh, and all the work that's gone on to help enroll people, because there are regional differences, even across California. San Francisco is among the very best at really aggressively taking advantage of the opportunities, making people aware of their coverage options, and getting them covered. And so uh, this is really dramatic. What was it before? It was about 40%, like you had said in your story. So this is an incredible change. Not everyone loves what's going on. Uh, you may have read about this. Um, so why is that? I mean, is it purely political? Um, there's absolutely a political layer to this. I mean, it was very clear that um, during President Obama's time, this became sort of a signature issue for him and one that absolutely uh, became a very strong part of the partisan uh, divide. But I do think that there is also some legitimate aspects that need to be considered why people could disagree about why isn't it a good thing that we got 20 million people covered uh, with health insurance. And I, the, the critique from the Republicans takes the form of these main key issues. One is they think that there is an overemphasis on the access and coverage rather than on cost. Um, and in particular, they are concerned that um, the expansion of coverage has happened through entitlement programs, specifically expansion of Medicaid and the development of a new entitlement program, the subsidies that are available to help low-income people buy insurance through the exchanges. Entitlements 
basically work as follows in this country. You, probably many of you understand this, but if you qualify on the basis of what is written into law, it's not then an arbitrary decision on the part of um, uh, the government to decide whether or not you get that. So if you are of a certain um, income group uh, and you qualify for the Medicaid program, the state can't come along and say, that's very nice, but we're full up on our Medicaid program. We'll let you know when there's an opening. It's an absolute entitlement. And so in a sense, this is something that is um, uh, raises concerns about uh, whether or not this creates an open-ended obligation on the part of the federal government to support um, uh, the costs of these programs. So I, I, I just want to Make sure you all understand that, and that that's a, a key issue in terms of those who critique uh, the Affordable Care Act. Another criticism is, is one of the features I mentioned to you under the, uh, the, the uh, marketplaces or, or the, uh, the, uh, uh, the farmer's market approach, which is the creation of essential health benefits of what insurance has to cover. And the concern has been that uh, Republicans have said, well, if you make health insurance have to cover doctor visits and hospital visits and ED visits, and actually the, the example that's most commonly used that perhaps you've heard in the news is, well, if I'm a man, why would I buy health insurance that has maternity coverage? Um, we could get into what that possibly means, but um, I, I, you know that's the the notion that like don't I just want to buy the benefits that I specifically need, um, and uh, you know that's that's an issue that is raised about whether it's making health insurance more expensive. It's kind of akin to what went on in the car industry in the past when airbags were invented, and there was this discussion about whether airbags should be a required feature of cars that are sold in the United States because, of course, it did make cars is more expensive. Uh, and the question was raised, well, shouldn't that just be a choice whether people want airbags as opposed to, no, it's a requirement. And so these are the kinds of decisions that do get um, uh, argued uh, in, in, the, in our public discourse and decisions are made about consumer protections versus costs and so forth. And then, of course, the individual mandate has been an ongoing sort of punching bag for those who do not like the Affordable Care Act because, in general, Americans are individualists, and so we don't like to be told to do anything, and so the mandate is, in fact, something that is identified as requiring people to buy a particular product. And so, you know, again, there's a lot of products we don't necessarily require people to have, but there are, of course, other kinds of insurance. You can't drive a car without having car insurance in California. It's not to say that people don't do it, but um, it, is a, it is the law. Uh, and so, uh, but that, that, that is an issue that is raised as part of the uh, critique. Let me, though, really, again, further emphasize why I think there is some, you know, legitimate things to concern ourselves about with regard to costs. So this is the federal, uh, federal budget. The federal budget going back to 1974, and you can see it's projected forward over time. The vertical line coming down is pretty much where we are now. So over time, pretty much the federal government spends about 20% of the GDP in the United States on federal government stuff. Now, uh, that stuff includes the bottom area of Social Security. You can see it's sort of hung out in the ballpark of 4 to 5% um, over this time period. Um, and the, the big news here is that the red area 
corresponds to health care programs and the portion that these entitlement programs are taking up of our federal budget over time. And what's happening is you can see that there has, there's basically a widening of that red band, not only up till present day, but projected to continue to widen going forward. And the implication of this, I mean, the reality of this, is that the light blue, the top part, if it stays at 20%, which is pretty much historically how much of the GDP we spend on federal stuff, gets squeezed, which is why things like Oroville dams start to like, not function, infrastructure does not get taken care of, uh, education systems are not invested in. Basically, if health care costs are growing, as they have been for many years, faster than other parts of our economy, that it squeezes out other things that we might want to make investments in. And so this is, in fact, sort of at the heart of a lot of the concerns that people have, which is, hey, we don't want to be spending necessarily more at the federal government than about 20% of our GDP. Can we afford to continue to have the federal investment in health care costs uh, and, and to put off these other things that are very good for our society as well, like infrastructure and education and so forth? And here's the other second half of that, which is critical, which is good news, medical care is working, we're all living longer. Bad news is we're all living longer. And so, uh, the, I mean, if you look from 1966 to 2016, so over that 50-year um, uh, period or so, we doubled from about 20 million people over the age of 65 to 40 million. And if you look ahead another 30 years, that's going to double again, up to 80 million. So basically, the demographics of our country is that we are aging tremendously. Uh, and this, of course, has associated costs uh, associated with, particularly for health care and other kinds of things. So this is a big part of why those who are providing uh, uh, through their taxes, particularly some of the uh, very wealthy conservative voices, are saying, huh, are my taxes purely going to be funding health care for a growing elderly part of the population through these entitlement programs? And is that what I think is how uh, uh, we should be making our policy in, in the United States? So part two. Part two uh, was when we had a change of leadership in, in the White House, and so that we were on a particular path, of course, with the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was debated as part of the uh, presidential race, and uh, clearly uh, President Trump has a different view of what should happen. So there have been various attempts to uh, try to think about how to repeal, replace the various R words you might want to put forward to it. I want to just sort of simply identify kind of what has been at the heart of all the attempts to change the Affordable Care Act since uh, Trump has come into the White House. It basically has, has been a, addressing two main things. First, the Medicaid program, in which it's talked both about trying to rapidly phase down the additional money that the federal government made available to expand Medicaid, as I talked about as the Affordable Care Act, but going actually well beyond that to uh, put in place a block grant or a per capita cap approach. Uh, they're kind of similar. We could talk about the differences if you want during the question part. But basically, this is moving away from an individual as an entitlement and moving toward giving states a fixed amount of money to take care of uh, their Medicaid beneficiaries. Um, and so that's a very different way of, of funding the program. 
and I'll talk to you about the implications of that in a moment. The other main feature is to address the individual market, those who buy insurance through the marketplaces, to eliminate the mandate for them to have to buy insurance, and also um, to um, eliminate the subsidies that were helping low-income people buy that insurance in the marketplaces. So you can see it's a direct attempt to deal with the entitlement programs, as I said, that are a key part of, um, uh, of uh, the Affordable Care Act. Now, this, I though think, is really, you need to put this in context, because I told you the population is aging, that there is a widening of the amount of investment in health care uh, in our federal budget, but this slide sort of puts in perspective um, which programs are actually being targeted and where the money is actually being spent. So these are kind of the main um, categories of programs that are there for both medical and social service support uh, in the United States. And this is data from 2017 from our federal uh, government spending. And so Social Security was $927 billion, Medicare program $590 billion in, in 2017. Uh, and those are programs that are clearly primarily targeting the elderly population. And you didn't see me say anything about those programs being cut or changed as part of the repeal. The programs that are being talked about are the programs that are on the right-hand side, which are the ones that are primarily there for the poor. Uh, the Medicaid program, which is $350 billion in uh, 2017. The exchange subsidies to help low-income people buy insurance in the marketplace were $51 billion. And then the CHIP program, which I haven't talked about, which is basically sort of um, the next income level of children who don't qualify for Medicaid or slightly higher level, is, uh, as, is a $15 billion uh, program. So, um, and in fact, the CHIP program, just incidentally, uh, ended at the end of 2017 and has not been renewed yet for 2018. So it has also been, in a sense, on the hit list of uh, programs to be eliminated. So the repeal efforts have really targeted the programs that are really designed to help the poor in this country and have really not touched the programs uh, that would address the elderly, even though, you know, again, uh, that, that is a policy decision, but if we're worried about costs related to uh, the aging of the population, there's a little bit of a, of a mismatch there. And to give you some sense of the impact of what these programs would do, um, more people would lose Medicaid coverage, would lose coverage in general, if the Republican law, uh, attempts to repeal the ACA. It wouldn't just sort of take away the coverage of the people who gained under the ACA. It would actually dramatically uh, go even further than that. And the main reason is because the cuts through the block grant process would remove during a 10-year period over a trillion dollars that would otherwise be going into the program, uh, which is about 25 to 30 percent of the expected money going to the Medicaid programs under our current arrangement. And so that this suddenly is a really dramatic change in the amount of money. So it's not just taking away the money for this expansion population, but it's the disabled, the low-income children, and so forth. And so there would be just a dramatic shrinkage of the Medicaid program. In addition, when our economy, for example, uh, has a downturn, I know we've had a very good run over the last few years, but inevitably that happens and people lose jobs with recessions and so forth. What historically the role of the Medicaid program is to be a safety net so that if people lose their job, they then are able to go onto the Medicaid program. 
in a block grant arrangement, there's no expansion that goes on. It's basically the same fixed amount of money is being given to the state. And so if more and more people show up and need Medicaid coverage because they lost their jobs, there's no extra money around for that. Whereas as an entitlement program, that automatically follows and really functions as a safety net that can flex during those times. So it's a really different model of, of, of what is being uh, talked about. Now, many people think here in California that perhaps we'd be different. We have a different point of view. We voted in a different kind of way. But the reality is there's no state that is more vulnerable to what has been talked about out of Washington than California. And that's because, as I already mentioned, California expanded coverage more than any other state in the country. Of course, we're a large state, but we also, on a percentage basis, made the biggest impact. Coverage in the Medi-Cal program, one in three people in California is covered on the Medi-Cal program. One in two children in California are covered on the Medicaid program. Um, there's a lot we could speak about, like, gee, why are so many people covered on the Medicaid program? I'll tell you that um, more than 60% of the people who are covered on the Medicaid program are in households with people who are working. Uh, but uh, we, we do have policies in this state which enable people to be working but not make enough money to get themselves out of poverty, and therefore they can still qualify and rely on the Medicaid program uh, for, for their health insurance. Uh, but if uh, these uh, Republican policies move forward, uh, this would have a very dramatic impact on the amount of money here. And one way to understand that, California last year spent $102 billion on the Medi-Cal program. Of that $102 billion, $62 billion came from the federal government to the state. And so uh, you can understand, and, and there have been estimates done now, that if, for example, some of these repeal and replace uh, proposals move forward, we'd probably be losing within a few years more than $25 billion a year from the Medi-Cal program. And, you know, the state, you could say to yourself, well, do we have a way to make that up? Uh, the only other things that would start to make it up in our state budget, if we didn't have a dramatic change in taxes, would be, well, we could get rid of the UC education system. That would get us $10 billion. Uh, we could um, let a lot of prisoners out of prison, uh, which I know there's a lot of good policies being talked about with regard to that. Um, but... You know, we, there aren't a lot of flexibilities about where that could come from. And if we want to fix the Oroville Dam or do some of the other infrastructure things we need to do, um, it's going to be very difficult for us to, to, to fill that in. And so um, it's really a, a very difficult situation. Now, you've probably heard the Republican line about this is, well, we're going to give block grants, but we're giving states much more flexibility. So I want all of you who have children, who give your children allowances to go home tonight and say to your child, hi, I'm going to cut your allowance by about 30%, but I'm going to increase your flexibility. That's, that, they're going to be very, very happy about that. <laughs> so, um, you know, this is what it's like in, in medicine, right? When you, uh, you, you start to treat someone and you think you've made the diagnosis and you're, the treatment is not working. Like, why is that? And you do this, and you go like, did I have the right diagnosis? Um, and the reality is that there is a tremendous mismatch between um, the treatment that is, was being offered as the Republican repeal of the ACA and what the underlying problems are uh, in the healthcare system. And, you know, more than anything else, and this is a key thing to understand, that the 
basis for arguing, I, I actually can understand that as a society, we might need to make some choices about how much money we as a society want to invest in spending on health care and what that's doing to our investments in education and so forth. But the way the law was going to be repealed was that that money that was going to be saved from cutting the Medicaid program, the vast, vast majority of that was not returning to the federal uh, 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 government to be used for roads or fixing bridges or education. It was going to basically a very small percentage of extremely wealthy uh, taxpayers uh, in the United States. And so this wasn't a decision about, oh, do we want to invest in this public thing versus this other public thing? It's do we want to have these public programs as a safety net or do we want to give an enormous uh, rebate to some extremely wealthy people in this country? And uh, that is the reality of, of how the, um, the, the repeal was written. Nothing about the repeal was making care more accessible, more affordable, designed to improve health outcomes, or to reduce the stress on health professionals, as Dean described in his story. Of if you're working, taking care of some of the most vulnerable, it's extremely stressful and, and challenging, and it's, it's challenging in all environments, given the demand that's going on uh, in, in health care. And none of those things were addressed uh, in, in the supposed uh, health reform repeal put forward by the Republicans. Well, what's going to happen? What, you know, where are we in this story? Well, uh, we're absolutely at a pause in legislative repeal in Congress. Essentially, a clock was started in 2017 through a process called reconciliation that you probably heard about at, at some point. Uh, that process actually expired on September 30th of 2017 because that's when the federal budget year ends. That process was a, basically a budgetary maneuver that allowed the Senate to only require 50 votes for a majority to get something passed as opposed to the normal rule of 60. And uh, with that, the clock expired. That doesn't mean that the Republicans couldn't go through a process to try to start a new clock in 2018, but so far they have not. And the number of times they can do that with the clock is a little bit limited, and they might decide that they want to do that more on tax reform this year than health care reform. But I don't want you to breathe a complete sigh of relief if you're happy that the ACA has survived for another day, because I think there still will be attempts, and we're aware of them already, of using other kinds of budget processes and other kinds of legislative vehicles to attach particularly some of these cuts to the entitlement programs. And, and really the argument for why it's so important to the Republican Party is because if you're trying to cut taxes, you need to in fact show that the amount of things that you need to use those taxes for is less apparent. So if you get rid of the entitlement programs, it helps you justify taking away the tax programs. Um, the other thing that we've seen use is the use of executive orders or changes of regulatory processes that are within the statute as currently written. And that includes things like Medicaid waivers and other uh, regulatory maneuvers that are within the uh, power of the executive branch that don't require Congress to act. And to give you a feel for some of those things, they're already a little bit in play, and they have been used clearly to try to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. Um, so you may have been reading about that um, you know, open enrollment starts for these marketplaces for Covered California on November 1st. Uh, the federal government uh, during Obama's time uh, would have that open enrollment run for about uh, 12 weeks. Now it's being cut down to six weeks. 
they're also um, uh, not going to be promoting and telling people about it, so they've dramatically reduced the budget to make people aware that it's open enrollment time. So any of you who work here at UCSF or work for other companies, you're getting those emails now that say, hey, it's open enrollment for UCSF's health insurance. If you're out there and using the individual market, you're not going to get that through support from the federal government. Fortunately, California and Covered California is actually investing some of its own money to try to put that message out. But in many states, that is not going on. The federal government has also cynically decided that it would be appropriate to do like software updates always on the weekends during open enrollment period when, by the way, it's a much more convenient time for people to be able to like purchase their health insurance. So they're going to have healthcare.gov like be down on the weekends uh, when it might be useful for people. Um, they're going to be, you know, you've you know, heard last week or so about the executive order of withholding the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, and just to make sure you know what these are. So if you're a low-income person buying insurance through the marketplace, there's two ways that the federal government um, may be helping you. For the very lowest income people, everyone who's eligible in the marketplace, and that's between 138% and 400% of poverty, get some subsidy help from the federal government. That's written well into the law, and is there's nothing to be debated about that. But there's a second portion, which is for the very lowest end of that, down closer to the 138% federal poverty level, there was additionally money made available to offset their co-payments and deductibles and so forth. And the federal government basically was directly paying insurance companies so that they didn't have to go to the lowest income people and say, give us your co-pays and deductibles and, 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 and whatnot. And the way the law got written left some ambiguity about how that money was supposed to be appropriated by the Congress. It was challenged during the Obama administration in the courts. It was still actually going through the legal process. And the Trump administration has stopped that legal process and just written the order to say we're not going to be providing those anymore. And that's having a very dramatic impact on raising rates because what insurance companies are doing is they're saying, well, if the federal government isn't following through on providing that money that we counted on, we have to raise rates another way to be able to collect that because that's part of our you know, anticipated uh, uh, costs. So that's what's going on there. And then also as part of that same uh, executive order, um, they, the president signed, he basically has tried to put in motion um, an idea that um, there is things called associations in which uh, whereby, say, restaurants uh, in an area could say, oh, we want to buy health insurance together for our employees. And by doing that, um, historically, because they were small independent companies, their employees used to be considered under the rules of the marketplaces like they were individuals or part of small businesses. And the rules that would apply to essential health benefits and, and so forth that I showed you in the marketplace would apply to those individuals. Trump is trying to change the rules to have those collectives actually be considered like large group insurance, the same we, we would get here through UCSF. And those rules don't apply to large groups. So the essential health benefit rule does not apply to like large employers. And the reason it doesn't is because there was no reason to. Large employers actually offer... Uh, uh, on average, like the plans are much more like platinum than they are like the silver or bronze that are in the uh, exchanges. And so, but 
What he's trying to do is say, oh, let's get all these, so that that would allow insurance companies to sell things that are exempt from the essential health benefits, and so that he could try to siphon off healthier people from the marketplace exchanges, leaving only the sicker people there, and you know that that leads to the death spiral of the costs going up for those who are left uh, behind. So it really is meant to, again, undermine uh, the marketplaces. And then the other way that they're attempting to unravel the, the power of the ACA is through Medicaid waivers. And this is a process that can be used in a constructive way, as it has been here in California. We use Medicaid waivers in which we're able to show that getting um, some savings through using things like uh, Medi-Cal managed care, that we can uh, derive savings and then reinvest that into our safety net and other ways to make care more available. Those who want to use these waivers for more cynical purposes of keeping people off the program are, are now some, are making some of those decisions. So the person who's running CMS now, the program, that, the agency that oversees Medicare and Medicaid, came from Indiana where she wrote Medicaid waivers that were about, oh, well, we will only give Medicaid in Indiana to people who will either pay co-payments or can prove to us that they're aggressively looking for work uh, that they are, uh, if they have unhealthy behaviors like they smoke or obese, we can penalize them for that. And so basically making it more barriers in the place for those who are most vulnerable to be able to take advantage of, of the safety net programs. And there are also even ways within the ACA that states can manipulate uh, through something called basic health plan waivers, ways that they can try to capture the subsidies that low-income people get in the marketplaces and redistribute those in ways that could actually help higher-income individuals. And you may have actually just seen in the paper today, Iowa was trying to do that, uh, and um, uh, the Trump administration was trying to support their doing that, but uh, the legal team in the executive branch said that is such a uh, egregious um, uh, interpretation of the of the federal law of the ACA that that cannot uh, cannot pass. So they actually withdrew that. But there will be attempts, I think, by other states to try to manipulate within the law ways that they can reallocate some of the funds designed to help low-income people get insurance and, and to make it uh, less successful. Now, Given all this, we're also seeing, you know, certain kinds of uh, political reaction, and California has certainly been an example of that. Um, nationwide, we are seeing that the ACA has never been more popular. Um, you know, when I first came back from working in Washington on the ACA, people said, oh, that's nice, you worked on a big bureaucratic thing. Now I, I feel like people talk to me like I'm a war hero. Uh, and so, I, you know, I guess this, you know, as time goes on, it just ages even better. So, but it, it's really fascinating that there's nothing like taking away something that finally makes people realize that they had something, right? It was almost like those funny things that we used to hear uh, you know, when the ACA was being debated and being implemented, you know, we, we, there were those, you know, news people would go out and talk and say, like, well, you know, keep the government out of my Medicare. And uh, people not understanding, like, no, that is a government program. Uh, so, um, you know, I think people have come to like, you know, and Jimmy Kimmel and all these late night, you know, do you like the ACA? Oh, love that. What do you think of Obamacare? Oh, that's horrible. You know, that they, basically is a lot of confusion out there. People have been getting clearly much more educated, and the ACA's popularity has definitely uh, grown substantially. Um, oh, I'm seeing stuff here. Um, 
there has been quite an active uh, resistance to the repeal process. People have really been mobilized and going out to different members of Congress. There's been very noisy town halls, uh, you know, uh, trying to advocate to not uh, repeal the ACA. And then um, something we can talk more about uh, perhaps during the, the, the chat is that the single-payer movement has definitely gotten itself, you know, some legs back under it again, where people are starting to say on the left, well, gosh, here we did this thing. It actually works with a lot of the pieces that still include many aspects of, of the private market. It's got private insurance companies, private providers. I mean, it, it's not that radical in terms of uh, how it's changed our healthcare system. Maybe, in fact, we you know, didn't go far enough, and, uh, and, and, and now we need to do that and think about how to address some of the fragmentation issues and so forth. So single payer is something, and, and you probably have seen that the California Senate uh, voted out a bill to uh, to move forward on single payer, and it's being discussed now uh, in, in the assembly. What do I think needs to happen uh, to turn the tragedy of what we're uh, dealing with a little bit into uh, hopefully a happier ending? Um, I think fundamentally the process really matters. I mean, I think it's extremely unfortunate that the ACA, which was really adopted so many of the ideas that Republicans have put forward over the years, it was basically uh, a lot of it was drafted off of what Massachusetts had done under Mitt Romney as a Republican governor. Uh, but fundamentally, the Republicans did not uh, uh, engage in the process of the ACA and have used this as a watershed issue. And now we've got the flip side with the Republicans in control and no, you know, a lack of bipartisan support there. And I think that for something as important as this, as a, as, a, uh, as a social policy, to not have it be a bipartisan activity is really um, undermining uh, our democracy and our ability to work together in this way. So I do think we need to find some of those, and I'll talk a, a little bit more about that in a moment. I think the other thing that's critical is that um, we need to broaden our view beyond health care because of the costs that I'm talking to you about and realize that we need a social agenda that doesn't just fix people after they need medical care, but much earlier on addresses health care education and prevention and helps people to stay healthier so that we don't have to spend as much money uh, in, in our health care system. So, you know, even if we have to back into bipartisan approaches, I think it's critical. These aren't necessarily easy things to do. Um, but, uh, you know, there is, I think you've probably seen that there is something now called the Alexander Murray Bill, uh, which is uh, uh, two senators from uh, the Democrat and the Republican Party have put forward some ideas of compromise to try to stabilize what's going on, at least for the next couple of years. They've proposed that, for example, in return for guaranteeing those low-income cost-sharing reduction subsidies, that um, it would be possible to try to sell plans with a little bit less of the essential health benefits. So they want to add a level below bronze that they're going to call copper. I'd call it tin, but that's, you know, just me. But, uh, you know, it would have a slightly less value. That, the, the goal of that would be could we get younger, healthier people to be more likely to, to be able to buy that. Um, another aspect of this uh, bill would be to fund outreach to tell people about open enrollment and to make sure that that money is really there and being used in return for uh, a more rapid process of approving state waivers, which do take quite a bit of time. But uh, one, one thing they're talking about, for example, is that 
Alaska, as one state, has designed a way to um, uh, uh, add reinsurance into their marketplace to bring the to, to help the highest cost people be cross subsidized across health plans and therefore lower the cost in all the plans. And they're saying, well, if Alaska got approved, maybe we could therefore streamline the process if other states wanted to use that to have it happen more quickly. So that's something the Republicans are interested in as a trade-off for giving the Democrats more of that outreach. Um, the, the Republicans would like wider pay banding between um, younger people and older people. So again, that the cost would be less for younger people. And maybe there's a way to do that if you also subsidize through reinsurance the cost for the people in the higher band. So maybe it would go from three to one to five to one based on age, but then you would also subsidize uh, the cost a little bit more for, for uh, elderly people, particularly if they're, they're lower income. And then um, there has been talk about, you know, maybe the individual mandate, which is designed to get everyone in the pool. Maybe there are other kinds of incentives that aren't a mandate, but maybe there is things like if you lose your job, you're auto-enrolled in a health plan or other kinds of defaults that would accomplish many of the goals of getting people into the pool but aren't quite a mandate in the same kind of way that, that irritates people. And just to emphasize what I was saying a little while ago about the social agenda, this is just gives you that perspective about you know how important is healthcare in in health, right? And um, you know it's been estimated it's probably at most in the ballpark of about 25 percent of, uh, of of what determines health in on a population basis. There are all you know the contributions of health behaviors uh, is on, on on a par with that. And then all these kind of social characteristics about giving people uh, access to healthy food and to give them stable housing and to make sure that there are places that they can safely do physical activities and exercise. All these things and education are critical as determining uh, health. And uh, we really need to think about how we can invest in that agenda to unload some of the anticipated costs that are coming in healthcare. And if you look around the world, I mean, many other countries do this much better than us. The U.S. is famous, you know, and they're sort of in the middle of the slide there. For, we spend more per capita than any other country by far on health care. But what's less recognized is that we actually spend much less than many other countries on what's referred to as social care, those things like housing policy, food policy, uh, and, and other things that help to keep people healthy. I mean, if you look at France and Sweden, which have among the best health outcomes in the world, you can see that they spend almost two to one on these social care policies relative to their health care policies. In the United States, we're just the other way around. We spend almost twice as much on health care than we do on social care. And so this is something I think we also really need to be talking about in terms of making an intelligent uh, a set of policies for our country to keep our population a a as healthy as possible. And I just want to do a shout-out here for, for Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, because I think, in fact, that is the place that is really helping to lead the way to think about integrating social policy and, and health care policy. I mean, there has always been, because of how much we've realized about the social vulnerabilities of our patients, uh, the need to think cleverly about how to integrate medical care and social care to deliver whole person care. And um, I just think it's 
a phenomenon that we have been able to do that with some of the challenges that Dean referenced financially, but I think it's also been a little bit of the mother of invention for us to realize how to find efficiency, and I think it's been critical. Another key aspect of Zuckerberg San Francisco General is, in fact, the academic public health partnership that extends into the community that really allows this kind of integration of social programs and, and healthcare programs and evaluation of them to see what really works. And I think it really is a model that uh, I'm both proud to have be a part of and uh, that I think that we should continue to really learn from as we try to make intelligent policy going forward. So I think the idea of innovating evaluating and implementing is the cycle that we all need to be on uh, with, with our healthcare system. And finally, I just want to say what gives me hope, uh, because I know there was a lot of like things that are not so happy in the story that we're in the middle of. It, it certainly raises concerns. But, um, you know, I would say that being here at UCSF, it's, it's still amazing to see that the people who apply to our health professional schools, uh, to our medical schools, so forth, are just incredible in terms of their idealism, their, their mission, their desire to really make a difference and to help people in need. Our students, I think, are more engaged than ever in these issues, and maybe that's the silver lining of when, you know, in the same way the ACA has become more popular, I think our students have really awoken in a really uh, 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 inspiring way to what's going on and are engaging in the issues. I think they're smart to recognize that there's both tremendous power in what medical care can offer, but it also has limitations, and that we do need new solutions to think about how to integrate medical care and social care and our policies. And basically, they give me the hope, because uh, I think we do need a revolution. It's rarely started by old people like me, and uh, I'm hoping uh, and, and, and excited. Uh, I'm so glad we have... Uh, the incredible faculty that we do at UCSF who encourage and inspire uh, these students because I think they will help us uh, get out of this, uh, uh, the, the bit of the, the nightmare that, that we're in. So thank you very much. I hope uh, this has given you some insights into our debate, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Andy. Don't, don't go away. Uh, that was a phenomenal summary of an incredibly complex topic. We're not going to do the fireside chat okay. in the interest of time. We will okay. take um, questions okay. from the audience. Okay. I just wanted to lead off with one, and, sure. and it sort of follows up on your last slide. Um, I like your war hero metaphor, by the way. Um, so, you know, you're kind of like, you're like your New England Patriots, and you won the Super Bowl, or you think you've won the Super Bowl, and then, like, back comes the other team, and they're going to take over. Um, and I, I appreciate what you said about the future is in our students, but... Um, you know, when you invest personally so much time and effort, a career, in something as important as this, um, and a movement gets started and laws get passed, and then they're jeopardized in these, in these ways, both directly and indirectly, what kind of keeps, and this is true for anyone who's working in issues that relate to social vulnerability and trying to, to overturn uh, policies that are... Uh, really regressive in many ways. What what keeps you going? How do you stay resilient? Or you know, how, just on a personal level, how do you how do you handle these ups and downs? Yeah, well, it, it is definitely challenging. I think there's a couple of things that have have helped me. One is um, when I had the opportunity to work in, in Washington, I 
um, you know, I was the newbie who showed up there and was working with a lot of really seasoned people. And they told me at the time that we were working on the Affordable Care Act, they're saying, I was saying, this is so incredibly exciting. And they said, yeah, it's always exciting to play offense, uh, but there are times you're going to have to play defense too. And you need to be strong for that. You have to anticipate it. It's part of how policy works in the United States. I mean, you never know the size of that pendulum swing, and clearly there's an attempt for a fairly large swing uh, back. But um, I do think recognizing that this is not a unique thing, that it does happen with uh, other policies, but I think in terms of on a day-to-day personal level, it is in, very similar to uh, when one's in a provider role at a place like San Francisco General. It's the connection to others that you're with and, and, and feeling that you are part of um, a chain-link fence, that you're part of a, a shared experience and that you're able to talk about it, you're able to strategize around it, that your feelings uh, don't just turn inward, that people are having similar experiences and... Uh, you know, I think you know as a provider at, at San Francisco General that being able to, when you're, you know, you described how busy you feel in that clinic in that moment, but the fact that you're doing it side by side with others and you know that the impact that they're also having gives you strength to want to carry on and do that. And I have found a lot of strength with other people that I had worked with in these policy roles who are continuing to actively share to try to find solutions I've been so impressed with Covered California's leadership here and the ways that they have tried to find, despite all the uncertainty that Washington is, is, is throwing at them, to find clever solutions so that people can still maximize the opportunity to get health insurance and so forth. So I think resistance doesn't necessarily always happen in these large-scale ways in the same way of, say, passing something like the ACA, but you can still do important things at the margin and then we also do have to keep our eye on, well, how do we change the, you know, the tide overall? And, uh, of course, the, there'll be another set of elections and those opportunities. So, but, yes, it, I think it, it, is, uh, it is challenging for all of us. And I, I guess I want to say we're both incredibly fortunate to be in San Francisco and in California, but um, we're not fully insulated. We're not completely in a bubble, and uh, you know, we, we are subject to some of this, and we need to, to take it seriously. So you, sir, are a very astute observer. So I'm just going to repeat for uh, So why is the, the Medicare cost, as an example, a steeper climb than, say, Social Security, which was edging up but not as much? And the short answer is because population aging is part of why health care costs are going up, but it's not the only explanation, whereas for Social Security, it is much more about that. In medical care costs, we also have new technologies, and, and growing costs, se- prices separate from what's going on with aging. So aging is a driver of it, but it's not exclusive in healthcare. So there are other forces. For example, many of you are reading about what's going on in the pharmaceutical industry and these very high-cost drugs or new innovations and, and, and raising real issues about the pressures on our healthcare costs. So in healthcare, it's both a combination of the demographic change but also separate issues related to pricing of how we uh, do things in healthcare that are not the same phenomenon as Social Security. So the question is, are those new expenses marginally useful? And the word marginal is critical there um, because um, sometimes, you know, uh, there there are judgments that are being made. You know, a lot of these costs, in some cases, I think you've probably read about some dramatic ones where it's just 
old drugs that are getting repriced in a way because they control the marketplace, like the EpiPen was a very famous story that many of you probably read in the last year, where this thing that's been around for a long time and was relatively cheap, someone bought you know, the patent and suddenly was, you know, took advantage of that uh, opportunity. In other cases, you know, there are dramatic new gene therapies that can be life-saving for diseases that we didn't used to have a way to save people but could cost hundreds of thousand dollars, uh, you know, in a single year. And so, you know, we need to make choices about, as a society, whether how we can afford that. There have been historical ways that we've thought about what is good value uh, in what we get in healthcare. But we've had a difficult time as a society having a grown-up discussion about that. If you recall during the ACA, the mention of even, like, you know, the notion in the Medicare program that we would you know, have a conversation with elderly people about the choices they might want to make about how aggressively they'd be treated was labeled death panels by uh, the, the opposition to that. And it had to be removed because it was seen as too politically dicey. Um, in other countries, they've had more ability to um, try to manage that uh, in some ways, but uh, we've had a reluctance to, to do some of that in this country. And Particularly spending at end-of-life care is an area where we are off the charts compared to the rest of the world. Those last uh, few months of care, we seem to be really good at spending a lot of money without getting much return. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.